yeah, let's just let's just start off with um, a little bit of news from the world today. Um, so, I mean, obviously the big thing uh, right now is uh, the death of uh, Joe Biden, and that's really come out of left field. Um, you know, everything going on in the world, just like a massive figure. And, you know, we're not big fans of his politics here, but, you know, he's a huge figure in all our lives. So, yeah. So that's just a, a really big thing that's happening today. Kind of fucked up that happens now. I, I don't know what's going on with the, the the primaries and all that stuff. But, yeah, it's... So, for Joe, I just prepared a little something to, uh, to see him off, you know. Uh, so... Joe Biden, wherever you are, this is for you. Yeah. Okay. It's, a big, it's got a big intro. There's it's a little bit. Okay. A another turning point. A fork stuck in the road. <laughs> You're nailing it. Time grabs you by the wrist, directs you where to go. So good. To make the best of this test, and don't ask why. It's not a question, but a lesson learned in, in time. It's something unpredictable, but in the end it's right. I hope you had the time of your life. You so should put out an album. I know, Gary. right? Like I, I feel like like for funerals and stuff, that could that could help a lot of people. Like I've, got, I've got a song to to memorialize Joe Biden. Thank you. Okay, go go. Uh, <clears throat> Imagine there's no Biden. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. You may say that I'm a burner. <laughs> But I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us. And the world will be as one. Yeah, you know, I think what, I what you did there... Have, oh, you no, go on. What you did there was there was too many like notes in, in, your, in, your, in your voice. Yeah, it was too notes. You want to keep... Yeah, you want to keep like one note. Okay, I'll try again. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> well, we don't need again. the whole thing. Don't oh, the whole okay. Thing, but right. just like, you know. I, I may, I'm, maybe I'll be able to hit, uh, fix it in post. You know, put a little. Okay. Like, yeah. Auto tune like, it. Yeah. Auto tune it to just like D. Mm -hmm. so there just are like D. six or seven drum machines behind it, That'd playing a clattering yeah. avant-garde uh, texture. Uh, I, I also have a song for Joe Biden, who who died. He tragically exploded. Rest in peace, Joe Biden. Yeah. Dead at the age of 8 billion. Yeah. Blew up like a bomb. Well, this song just keeps going, Rest right? Rest in peace. Oh, well. Yeah, I mean, we, I think we sent him off right. I think that we was did. the kind of Viking funeral that Uncle Joe needed. Um he listened to three vaporwave albums simultaneously and immediately exploded. Yeah, and not not like a 
incendiary kind of explosion, just kind of like a like a balloon, like like kind of a puff, like those mushrooms that kind of release clouds <laughs> of spores. Mm -hmm. So I think he's become one with with the only vapor. the the spores were his blood and bones and organs. Yeah, exactly. I hope there's not just going to be Biden's prop coming up all throughout the forest now. <laughs> on, on Little heads that are like, listen here, Jack. <laughs> he kind of does look like a type of fungus at this point. Like he's got that mm -hmm. sort of like fleshy. His skin looks like not quite flesh. It, it almost looks more fungal than human flesh right now. Yeah, I wonder if he has like if he lifted up his arms, he have those little like gills that mushrooms <laughs> have. That'd be gross. Like a uh, Ren Stimpy. So yeah, and we're here with. Uh, I, do, I was going to call you AP Andy. Give your antifada. I'm a man name. of many names. Yeah. Um, my least... real name is A M Gitlitz. Andrew Gitlitz is my real name. People think that's a fake name, but that's my real name. Uh, but I, uh, I am the Antifada producer, AP Andy, but mm -hmm. you can just call me Andy. Yeah, and I will. Uh, so for those of you who haven't heard the Antifada, it's a very good podcast, uh, out of Brooklyn, New York. Uh, it is a, what, what would you say your tendency is a narco-communist podcast, a communist podcast, I, I in a way, quite land. Yeah, we just call ourselves communist podcasts, but we we tend to be more on the ultra left side of things: anarchist, yes. autonomist, anarcho communist. Yeah, and your content has been all over the place in like best way. You have like um, recently be doing a your kind of hashtag line goes down series talking about economy, mm -hmm. but then you also had uh, Heather Fortune, who was going to be a guest on this show, but then she had to cancel. Oh, so. great. Yeah, she was gonna. We we're gonna talk to her yesterday, but we're gonna talk to her Monday now. But, she um, seems to be getting a little bit stir crazy, so I'm glad you're you're <laughs> keeping her entertained. Yeah, yeah she's she's gone from uh, ran out of New York and gone to Michigan now. So hopefully we'll yeah help her out in whatever way we can. But um, yeah, it uh, folks who don't haven't listened to it yet, very good podcast. But thank you. In addition to your production and uh, theory head uh, duties on the Antifada, you have also written a book about uh, Jay Posadas, the meme guy who we know from memes. It turns out he's real. Who knew? He, he was real. Yeah, Today, he, he exists only in memes. He's not um, real any longer. No. He's he's transcended the physical plane into the meme sphere. He's that's become that. something like a cartoon character in a way, and it, and in a way, I think that's appropriate. Um, but yeah, he was a real person, and I I wrote uh, something that's uh, something of a biography of him and the story of his movements. Um, it's called "I Want to Believe: Jay Posadas, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism," something like that, and it's mm -hmm. uh, coming out April twentieth, four twenty. On Pluto Books, you can pre-order it now. Uh, use code Posadas20 for a 20% discount. And uh, yeah, so I talk about the history of the movements. I interpret what it means that he's popular again today, that at times Google searches for Posadas have become uh, even higher than searches for Trotsky 
or certainly any other rival Trotskyist. And I theorize, you know, kind of a deeper political significance behind the fascination of space, aliens, nuclear war, and meme culture in general. Those are the four things we generally talk about on the show. That and totally right. sick death metal. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, we've got to talk about that too. Um, so, yeah, we, so how, where did you, where can you start with a guy like Posadas? I mean, let's, let's just go into his life first before we talk about the book. So where did, where does he come from? Where, what's his story? He is from Buenos Aires, Argentina. His parents were uh, very poor immigrants from the south of Italy. They were shoemakers, and uh, they were part of a, an anarcho-communist union called the Fora uh, that was incredibly powerful. It was really the center of the workers' movements in Argentina in the 1910s and mid-1920s. And one of Pesadas' earliest memories was the Semana Tragica, which was a near revolution in 1919, where uh, elements of the Fora and other radical trade unions shut down the city, had a near insurrection, and it ended in you know the the state slaughtering a lot of people and this these reactionary pogroms. Um, and in his childhood, he had this this sense after that moment of wanting to uh, you know help foster another revolution, but also understanding that the forces higher forces, the forces of the state, were powerful enough to suppress it. Um, and in his, you know, 20s and 30s, he got into Trotskyism, uh, and he he rose the ranks in Latin American Trotskyism uh, in the 50s and split off into his own international in the 60s. And at that point, he kind of let some of his more idiosyncratic ideas run wild. Um, and that And that's when he developed the kind of persona as a uh, new age cult leader that we know him for today. And from what I understand, he was always quite charismatic, right? He, even when he was like part of the fourth international, he was like a, a great speaker and a great organizer of people. Yeah. Uh, a, a big part of the story is something that I don't, I've never experienced because everyone who's heard him speak told me that you don't understand Posadas unless you've seen or heard him speak. And there's audio tapes out there, but I haven't. I don't have any access to them. But apparently, he had this very musical, comical, rhythmic style. And in text, it sounds totally deranged. His newspapers, which are available on Marxist.org, all of his texts are very long-winded, very repetitive, very strange. But apparently, in person, he was very charismatic. And um, I guess it makes a little bit more sense if you if you've heard him or met him the way he was able to suck people in. Hmm. Uh, uh, people describe him in the same way that they describe Jim Jones or L. Ron Hubbard, where he was just this very powerful figure that people really liked and trusted, even though in text, what he's saying is really bizarre. And he was like an actual proletariat worker, as opposed to like the more like students and intellectuals who are mostly around that time, right? Yeah, that's a very important part uh, of his story is that... Uh, when he was recruited into what became Trotskyism in the mid thirties, they were all intellectuals and poets and artists. And, you know, uh, Trotsky actually called the Argentinian Trotskyists coffee shop wankers because all they did was sit around drinking coffee and fernet and, and cafes. And Posadas really did have this working class background. And 
they recruited him as a as a union organizer because he could talk to workers and he was very good at it but he was not an intellectual he did not understand hegel and marx and lenin and trotsky at the same level as these other guys but he believed that since he was a worker since he did have this background in, in poverty and, and the working class lifestyle that he should be a leader of the trotskyist movement and eventually when he tr he made that play to become a leader and they pushed him back down because nobody really, because you know everyone thought he was kind of crazy and weird. He took that as a sign that they wanted to keep the movements, uh, this elite circle, and not let the workers, especially Latin American workers, who at that point were a major uh, faction of the international, um, into the leadership position. And that's when he split off. Mm. And and this is like occurring in like what the forties or fifties. Um. He started his first group in the 40s, and he became the secretary of the Latin American Bureau, which was like the umbrella group that most of the Latin American Trotskyist groups were affiliated and organized by in the 50s. And then in 61-62, uh, he, he split the Latin American Bureau from the Fourth International and created the Posadist International. And, and the UFO stuff, that came later, right? That was more like 68, 69? So there, there was a member of the movement named Dante Minazzoli, also uh, an Argentinian who has anarchist roots, uh, who was always interested in UFOs. He actually brought it up for the first time in 47 after the Roswell incident. And the, at that time, everybody was like, look, we're trying to do serious working class struggle here. We don't want to talk about UFOs. But in the 60s, um, like I said, the Posadas movement started to shrink because they made a lot of bad and catastrophic political decisions. Their working class base started to think that they were kind of weird uh, and they, they started dropping out. They were losing cadres. And around 67, 68, Minnesota decided, I'm going to push this UFO line again. And Posadas <laughs> gave his... Track. He gave his... Uh, he gave his, Basically, it was an argument in the inner circle where Minnesota was talking about UFOs. Maybe one or two people agreed with him. But the other intellectuals in the movement, including Guillermo Elmira and Aldolfo Gili, who continued to be very important Marxists for decades afterwards, uh, real intellectuals, um, they were against this UFO rhetoric. And Posadas stepped in to intervene. And basically, he said, yes, UFOs are real. They're aliens. They're visiting us. If we can contact them, we ought to, because they are more advanced than us. But we shouldn't worry too much about that because we have everything on earth we need right now to solve these problems of war and homelessness and poverty and crime. And we should just develop the, the earth into a common society. And then hopefully we can make contact with aliens after that. Uh, and that was the last time he wrote about it again. But it was published in 68, in the spring of 68, actually. And it, it became kind of uh, viral at the time amongst Trotskyists who thought it was so funny that this guy was talking about UFOs, they were already mocking him for other positions he had. Uh, but this was like, you know, proof positive that this guy was crazy. And, uh, and that helped them um, kind of uh, reconcile to themselves the fact that Trotskyism was not doing well during the 68 uprisings. That's my theory on it, at least. So by laughing at him, they kind of defended themselves. Um, and Posadas never wrote about it again publicly mm -hmm. he he remained a believer in aliens uh but it did continue to devolve into a leader cult uh mm -hmm. a very typical leader cult in a lot of ways 
just not a UFO cult. Mm, yeah. And he was also big into, well, as much as you could be into like nuclear war. He saw that as a kind of way that, uh, I think he said something like the Stalinists and the uh, imperialists could kill each other, then the Trotskyists could rise up in the ashes, that that kind of thing, right? Right. Um, that was actually, you know, the UFO stuff was more marginal to what the Posadists were really about, hmm. but the nuclear war stuff was essential to it. And Posadists oh. wasn't the first person to, to think this. A after World War II, the, the Fourth International was led by a guy named Michel Pablo uh, out of he was uh, based in France at the time. He's originally from Egypt and Greece. Uh, but he wrote a thesis in uh, 49 that world, the World War II had not actually ended. It was going to start again or continue uh, any moment because capitalism was going to collapse. There was going to be a war between the imperialist powers and the USSR. There was all this revolution spreading in, in China and in Korea and uh, Algeria. And so they thought that World War III was going to happen any moment. And of course, as after the USSR got the nuclear weapons, they thought that this would be a nuclear war. So the Trotskyist line in the early 50s, even until the end of the 50s, was that nuclear war was coming. And we, the, the goal of Trotskyist was to uh, you know, be, on the, be on the side of the USSR and the worker states and try to survive it and create communism afterwards. So Posadas didn't invent this idea, but he kept this idea in an extreme way after it was kind of passe, because the economy in Europe uh, recovered. Capitalism was no longer on the brink of collapse by 1955. Michel Pablo started backing off that idea. And when, when Posadas split from the international, he said, I'm the one who still believes we need nuclear war ASAP. And if you're not a, uh, uh, he used like some, you know, uh, some kind of nasty slurs I won't repeat. It's in the book, but I won't say it against the other Trotskyists. If you're not like those guys, uh, you have to come join the Posadas International because we're not afraid of doing what needs to be done, nuclear war. And they actually did push for this during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Wow. And he and there were like uh, Posadist groups in um, Cuba, right? They they fought alongside Castro. Okay. Yeah, the the only Trotskyist group, the, the Trotskyists that existed in Cuba during the revolution, formed into the Partido Obrero Revolucionario Trotskista, which was under the control of the Latin American Bureau in 1960. So when they first started, they were you know their own kind of Trotskyist but they were under the leadership of Posadas. And when Posadas broke from the international, um, you know, some, of, some Latin American Trotskyists broke from Posadas, but mm -hmm. the Cuban poor stayed with him. So when this group was having their conflicts with uh, Castro and Guevara and the Soviet Union during the missile crisis, they were under the ideological leadership of Posadas. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they continued to be until the group was totally banned around 1964, 1965. Uh, yeah. But interestingly, Guevara defended them for, for a long time. Hmm. Well, he, he's always been cool. You know, he's just a chill guy. And so, yeah, and there were even like uh, Posadists in Britain, right? Am I, am I getting that right? 
Yeah, the the revolu the Revolutionary Workers Party. Uh, I I think they might still technically exist. Um, I know there's at least one member who is uh, still with us and active, named Mary Lynham. And yeah, they were um, <clears throat> they are one of the most important groups of the international. Uh, and at least one of their members wrote a memoir, uh, David Douglas, who uh, I forgot the name of the town he was in. Uh, Jordy, or is that a dialect? Uh, that's Newcastle. Okay, so he was a he was a miner from that area, mm -hmm. uh, and he started a cadre there. And he joined because of the nuclear war rhetoric. He thought he he, cons nice. he considered himself an anarcho Maoist because he was so upset about what he saw coming out of Vietnam. And when he heard about this Trotskyist who believed in nuclear war, he was like, "Oh, that's me. That's like my politics." Um, <laughs> so he joined until the until around the mid seventies when he started becoming more influenced by the new left. Um, but yeah, the British Posadists were influential in uh, some automaking unions. Um, I think they were influential in the, like a, a bus driver's union. Um, and they, they were still going as a block to anti-war marches uh, as recently as 2003, I think. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of weird Trotskyists in this country, so that wouldn't surprise me at all. They are everywhere. Um, and they're always in little, little groups of like five or six, and they never do anything. Um, but yeah, I can, I, can I can totally see that. Um, very weird for a guy to be obsessed with nuclear war coming out of mining in Newcastle, though. They're like, <laughs> you know, hard-headed sons of the earth, that kind of thing. So, well, you first? might like this this biography that he wrote. This autobiography. It's called uh, "The The Wheels Still in Spin," and he writes it in that Geordie dialect. Um, and <laughs> nice. he and he really goes into like what attracted to him to Posadism, um, and also what was really ridiculous about being in the movement. Like he was writing a newspaper for miners, hmm. uh, but he had to write it in this. The, the the Posadists had a way of translating Posadas where they were trying to keep the Argentinian they're they basically translating him like way too literally, like almost running him through Google Translate. So the way it, it reads in, in text, and you can read the uh the red flag newspaper uh on Marxist.org, it sounds really bizarre, like the way the, the words come out. It's like like I said, through Google Translate. And he was really embarrassed to hand this out to miners because, like, <laughs> you know, they didn't talk this way. Um, but there's a lot of great details like that. And eventually he quit the movement because they were told from up, up on high that they can't uh, drink after meetings and men and women can't <laughs> sleep in the same room after meetings. And they were kind of libertines. Um, so they, re they rejected that kind of uh, that ascetic uh, life of the party, revolutionary morality of the Posadists in the early 70s. Was there a lot of that, like, kind of culty stuff going on in, in around the Posadists then? Like, actual, like, um, not just like a cult of personality, but actual restriction on people's lives, telling them what they, can't, they can and can't do in sexually and so on? Yeah, that became incredibly important uh, after the split. Posadists believed that um, well, there's a certain aspect of Leninism 
where you have to uh, have this kind of militant lifestyle hmm. where you submit to the discipline of the leadership and your entire life is is for the movement, for the program to forward it. So that's true in, in any Marxist-Leninist group. But Posadas took it to the next level where he, he kind of combined it with these new age theories of harmony and the social organism and also his like strange visions of the future and combine that with his own idiosync idiosyncrasies. So like, for example, um, his marriage was apparently entirely sexless. I don't know why, but uh, that's what people say. And he said that, you know, there should be no sex except for procreation and certainly not hmm. outside of marriage. Uh, he really thought that sex was degenerate and um, anyone caught having, uh, having sex too much or not having children uh, and, and also if you had, you had to have be approved to have children. So basically you had to have, ask permission to have sex. Um, from Posadas himself. Uh, yeah. From the leadership, um, maybe yeah. Posadas, maybe someone else, but so, so you uh, do you like raise it as a point of order in meetings or something? Like, uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly when you would bring it up. Is there a form um, to fill out? I feel like it was more if you, if he wanted to discipline somebody, he could use that as a reason or if he needed an explanation for why why they failed like why the movement's been failing he could mm. say well there these guys in uh, newcastle are having too much sex or whatever or like yeah. they're they're not submitting to the revolutionary morality um so uh one thing that he would do is if um there was a married couple like you know at one point he moves to rome <laughs> and so these married couples <laughs> Uh, the the married uh, couples that remained in Argentina, he would split them up. Uh, he would say, you come to Rome, you stay in Argentina. And the way uh, he rationalized that was that um, their libido is now going to be purely directed towards the cause. Yeah, that's how that works. Whenever I'm horny, I, could, I definitely <laughs> um, get more productive. And I'm much more radical. There's kind of like a no wanks proud boy aspect to that, um, but yeah, yeah. That, that was that's one example of many you know restrictions on lifestyle that only became more and more extreme as the movement became more more marginal. He said, like the problem is the way that you're living. You have to live more like me. You have to be more disciplined, and that's that way. He always had a way to blame his militants for his own failures. Cool. So we're gonna take a break for some music but we'll uh we'll continue into the crazy world of jay posadas <laughs> great uh so yeah landed you, you picked this band so you should get to uh you should get to introduce uh Sweven. okay finish your food no sorry that's me oh okay sound still here no uh -oh. landon Sex millionaire. Oh, oh, there you sorry. are. Sorry. Okay, I had muted myself. Okay, sorry. Yeah, using that so... classic technique. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I um, sorry, I'm just still processing everything we've been talking about. It, it's so fascinating to hear. Obviously, like the the realist, um, like the material realist aspect of posadism outside of the um jokey fluffy meme image um that's it's really weighty 
Ah, satisfying. Um, anyway, the song that we're going to play next is by a group called Sweven. Um, it's off of their debut record. Um, however, this isn't necessarily really a debut album. Um, this has been talked about a lot in various reviews of it. I haven't seen a lot of uh, pre-release writing about the album, which I found really odd. Um, like, I kept looking as the lead-up to the release was coming in. It looked like Brooklyn Vegan, who I work for, is, like, the only place that wrote, like, hey, this is about to come out. Um, but it's actually functionally the third Morbus Crone record, who were... They started as a fairly normal um death metal group um albeit of the um repugnant and tribulation style of death metal so folding in a lot more psychedelic and a lot more um if i say proggy i mean proggy more in the vein of like the directions um that opeth explores with like sounding at times straight up like jethro tull or something rather than like uh obscura or like mid-period death or something um but as morbus crone developed further and further they got <clears throat> sort of undoubtedly further away from death metal and more towards again very similar uh to what tribulation is doing now where like death metal is part of it but it feels more there's a bit of glam rock there's a bit of psychedelic rock there's a lot of progressive rock there's a lot of um just different like classic rock components and then this like little death metal spice thrown throughout um and the group broke up after their final record which was titled sweven but the main songwriter wanted to keep going in that direction so he formed a new group and basically to signal as hard as possible that think of this as a follow-up to the album sweven not the first record of a new group he titled the group sweven so it's like it's <laughs> functionally makes it hard to talk about um uh because mm -hmm. it becomes a name that is both an album and then the follow-up group but this record the eternal resonance i've had a promo copy for a while i think since about january it is tied right now for my number one album of the year um, the other two are the new Aransi Pazuzu, which we've played um, a track from on an earlier episode as well, and that Spectral Lore Mare Cognitum uh, split LP that we've also played um, yeah. a track from. Just this album, The Eternal Resonance, is just fucking jaw-dropping. It's like, I can't have a rational, critical response to it because it feels like spirit music for me or something. <laughs> like, the kind of, like... That like if you had to score your own dreams, like it's so it feels so close to me on a personal end that I can't pull it far enough away to have any coherent statement about it other than like, fuck, it's perfect. Like I, I just cool. I, I fucking love it. Well, so which of the tracks are we playing? Um, let me look at the uh, uh, let's do Sanctum Sanctorum. Which is mm -hmm. the final track. Okay. <clears throat> yep. The so whole album, is... just like uh just like the album Sweven, plays as a single like album length song suite. Um so like if you're not looking at the track listing, it feels like a sixty minute long composition. And this is functionally the final movement of it. Um cool. Yep, so here's uh Sanctum Sanctorum by Sweven. 
So that was Sanctum Sanctorum by Sweven. Isn't Sanctum Sanctorum like Doctor Strange's house? Uh, yes. Uh, it, it, it it's well, it's from uh, it's from occultism more generally and theology. Um, it just means like um, the holiest of the holy, like the. Nice. But it's also but, uh, Doctor Strange's house. Yeah, yeah, it is, and that's okay, literally cool. where it came from. Yeah, yeah, nice. Both in religion as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, a uh, a review of the album on Bandcamp says uh, those last three tracks blew my ass apart. Wow. So yeah, well done, ghoulish Dave. Uh huh. But and also well done for being called ghoulish <coughs> Dave in the year twenty twenty. Hopefully, so, it's because he has a disease. Yeah, I mean, if his ass is blown apart by music, um, we're here with Andy. Uh, he has written a book on Jay Posadas and UFOs and weird Marxist cults, and I also wanted to talk to you about you. You went down to Latin America and like boots on the ground and um, talked to people and talked to people who were part of the Posadas cult. So what what were they like, and what what's it just like there now? Well, I, I met uh, the only person I met who's still involved in the movement was the secretary of the Uruguayan section, and he was a really nice guy, very down to earth. Um, he didn't want to talk to me initially because they are very secretive, but Uruguayan people are just naturally very uh, open. Uh, and uh, friendly, so he, he kind of couldn't resist. So we talked for a couple of hours, um, and he wouldn't tell me too many details, but he did give me the impression that although he recognized Posadas as an important thinker and had a lot of respect for him, he knows that times have sort of changed, and today his party is just kind of a, a functionary of the Frente Amplia, which up until last year was the governing left-wing coalition in Uruguay. Um, the leadership of the International is now with Posadas's son in Buenos Aires, Leon Cristalli, and he would not talk to me. Uh, I went to their office in Buenos Aires, and they slammed the door in my face, um, and they didn't respond to any questions. Um, there's also the, the European section of the International uh, didn't, has been a little bit helpful, but hasn't answered any questions either. Um, so most of my information comes from ex-militants of the movement, from memoirs of uh, Elmira and Dave Douglas, Piero Leone, who's in the Italian section. And they all tell the same story of uh, a group that at one point was a legitimate uh, militant international rooted in the Latin American working class that devolved into a cult. Um, mm -hmm. And they all, you know, were kind of they took lessons from that. And, and one of those essays uh, I helped translate for Marxist.org. Um, it's called Bulletin Marxista 8. Um, you can find it if, if on Marxist.org. If you search Marxist.org Posadism, uh, you'll find it. Uh, and that gives really the political history of the movement. Uh, and their argument is basically, yeah, what happened to us is, a, is an extreme example of what happened to Marxism-Leninism in general about how it went from this working class force uh, in the 1910s and 20s and 30s until it just evolved into authoritarian leadership, small group hustles in the 70s and 80s. 
And so why do you think that why do you think that's happened? Because I mean, I'm I'm thinking of like people like Lyndon LaRouche, who started as a fairly orthodox uh, socialist of some some description, and the National Caucus of Labour Committee sounds like a very normal middle of the road thing. But then the guy's an absolute whack job, and his cult is really dangerous and toxic for people in it. So why? And there doesn't seem to be that much that equivalent on the right. I mean, there's some weirdos on the right, but they don't form cults and little group hustles like this. So why do you think uh, Marxism specifically has this ability to just like devolve into cults sometimes? I, I don't think that Marxism specifically uh, creates these cults. Um, there's a book by two ex-Trotskyists. Uh, I think their names are... Walforth and Torish. It's called a. Uh, uh, I think it's called extreme political cults on the right and left, or on the mm-hmm. edge, something like that. Um, and they they argue that Marxism Leninism, done properly, does approach a cult, because you have done this concept properly, of uh, done properly. Yes, okay. because there's this, this, there's this concept of democratic centralism, mm-hmm. uh, but in the Leninist tradition the centralism is really what's emphasized. Hmm. And taken to its logical extent, there is this, uh, you know, this sort of deification of a charismatic leader, this belief that uh, you are this vanguard group that is going to save the world, um, that a day of reckoning is coming and you're going to be the group that leads it. Stuff that's very typical for a cult. And then also your involvement in it um, in, is, uh, you know, there's this escalating spiral of commitment where, you know, you, you can never do enough. And certainly for Posadism, his, his theory of how his group would become a vanguard was that the cadres would spread virally and produce more cadres. And so really you could never do enough. Uh, you had to keep expanding. Now, uh, that's just not unique to Marxism or Marxism-Leninism. You see that on the right for sure, the right has these cult-like group hustles with with uh, strange leaders. You see it in non-political groups like the, your typical UFO cult or a New Age cult, and I think you see it in uh, in the in certain kinds of political parties. You know, you could argue Trumpism is a kind of cult, or like the the fandom of Hillary Clinton is is kind of cultish in a way. Certainly, corporations uh, have these kind of ideologies and this groupthink. You know, where you have to like sing a company song or like only fraternize with people in the office. So there's elements of cults everywhere. Um, so I don't think it's it's fair to say Marxism produces them specifically, but uh, I, I do I do find it hard to argue with this thesis that Marxist Leninist groups, if they're doing it the way they should be doing it, uh, or the way they traditionally do it, are not cults. Cool. I mean. I mean, is it maybe like a a good adaptation? Because if you're in that kind of group and you're doing this like work that's very um, that's very difficult to try and change the world and change the economic order of the entire planet to, to have a world revolution, something that's never happened, has never even come close to happening. Like, kind of the only way you're going to get people to do that is if they're completely nuts. And they're they're in it 
body and soul, and they're just as much in it as Charlie Manson's acolytes, I guess. So, yeah, kind of makes like just being a communist seem very silly now that you say it like that. But, well, that's um, the thing is, I mean, that's the that's the idea behind the title of the book. Is is it? Are you nuts if you believe in anything? You know, I you know I don't want to say yes, uh, but I think a big part of the irony of the Posadist meme is not just mocking this guy who believed in aliens or nuclear war. I think that the the people who do these memes find those things kind of sympathetic. The ir the ironic part is that he believed in these things so much that he had a revolutionary socialist movement around them, and I think that's what's ironic to people now. Not the strange things, but what was very normal about Posadas, which was that he believed, like every revolutionary socialist believed uh, up until maybe the 70s or 80s, that there was going to be a communist revolution and we were going to see communism within our lifetimes. I mean, yeah. I, I can even speak speak personally to that, even like um, knowing this stuff, having having read the material, but then just hearing you say it again just again confronting the um the stark material behind um this image of posadism of like um psychic talking dolphins and atlantis and ufology and and all of the sort of <clears throat> like weird lit um and psychedelic uh imagery that gets folded into it that was present but it's it's more startlingly strange how the explanations of it um, radically normalize a lot of it. Like the thought that uh, he in specific and, and the group more broadly were, um, it wasn't so much necessarily like pro-nuclear war as not viewing it as inherently negative of like, well, the only thing that could survive in the wake of nuclear war would be communism. So even if like swooping in moderate, uh, it's going to sound weird saying being opposed to nuclear war is a moderate thought, but I, in, in comparison, um, being able to swoop in otherwise moderate Marxist thinkers into being like tolerant of the notion of a nuclear war because of having these startlingly robust rationale about behind like well you know in the wake of this you know all of these other institutions would literally be the targets of these weapons like you're not gonna avoid bombing a bank or a um an institution of like political culture um and so all that's left is community and community can be the only thing that survives in the wake of that nuclear inferno and it's like wait fuck that makes that makes an amount of sense am i losing it now <laughs> like um it's more strange to confront that or like the thought that specifically with ufology, I, it's a thought that gets proposed and um, we actually see a remarkably normalized version of it through like the socialist sci-fi of Ian Banks, the entire thrust of Banks. the entire thrust of the culture books is built off of the exact same premise as Posadist ufology that it's, more that a um and we get this actually in critiques of elon musk so to start at that material component the thought of colonizing mars under capitalism feels far-fetched and insane because capitalism would never allow um the the building of habitation for its own sake 
it has to be profitable. And so at that point, we have to be extracting mineral from asteroids or from Mars or from the moon. And that means we have to get them back to Earth, which means we need to have fuel. And it builds in these layers that gradually make it impossible. It makes the dream die on the vine. Meanwhile, a socialist society that just reorders how it expends its resources could find itself capable of doing such things because gives everyone what they need and then uses the excess basically as as play and it's like oh well what will we do today oh we'll develop fuck it ufos like we have the ability we don't have scarcity and we don't have hunger so let's make something really cool and beneficial so then the thought being that the only alien you could run into would be a communist and thus would have solidarity with you and then having literally ian banks making this vast um, like very well regarded sci-fi series. It's extremely good built off of the back of that. But one of them is considered this hacky meanie joke. And the other one is considered serious, heady literary sci-fi, even though they're functionally indistinguishable. And Elon Musk it, is a big Ian Banks fan as well. Yeah, but he's a dipshit. <laughs> he's an absolute fucking idiot. Mad, he does like guy. some good things because, unfortunately, being tremendously fucking stupid doesn't preclude you from liking dope shit. Mm, yeah. It's a sad fact about dope shit. It appeals to basically everyone. Yeah. And, um, yeah, speaking of, of dope shit, um, like, do the, do you think the Posadists still existing nowadays know about like how memeified this has become. I know you haven't spoken to any of them directly, but do, do you think they're aware of it? I, I've talked to a couple of them, uh, and, and yeah, they they have a sense that that's going on, uh, but they don't really care. Like um, Leon Cristalli, Passas's son, uh, when he's asked about the UFOs, he's like, look, Carl Sagan believes the same thing. Everybody loves Carl Sagan. But when Posada says it, he, he everyone says he's crazy. And he's totally right to say that. I mean, Sagan believed essentially the exact same thing. He was even probably a socialist. And certainly the guy who wrote the book, uh, Intelligent Life in the Universe with him, Yosef Shavsky, was a, a communist, a Marxist. Um, so the UFO stuff is really not uh, the weirdest part about Posadism. Um, mm. But generally, the Posadists that still exist are just not interested in the internet stuff. Uh, they, uh, they, they don't, they don't seem very offended by it. Um, and they certainly don't seem to recognize that there's some potential there in like recruiting people or spreading those ideas. Uh, they just, I think they're just, they're, they're all very old. A lot of them have passed away every year, you know, uh, Guillermo Almira, who you know has wasn't a Posada since the seventies, but he just passed away. Um, so they they don't seem very interested in the phenomena of Posada's reemergence, which I just interpret that to mean that this neo Posadism, this Posadas of memes, is going to be the Posadas that gets remembered, mm -hmm. whereas this more historical Posadas of this guy that built this movement that still exists. Uh, that's going to be forgotten very soon. Hmm. Well, you know, maybe a book can can help us realize that as it there is actually a dude behind this stuff. There is actually he was his life was very little orientated around UFOs. Um, like yeah, I 
I did want to ask about dolphins because I keep hearing dolphins and Posadas, but um, what what was that that all that about? Was what was his deal with dolphins? He became interested in dolphins really late in life, uh, probably around 1980. He just died. He died in 1981, mm -hmm. um, so really just in the last years of life. But it, it did. It was a significant symbol for him, and he became interested in them after hearing about the work of Igor Tcharkovsky, who was a New Age Russian midwife who did these experiments with water birthing. So he he basically was the pioneer of water birthing. Oh, so um, the guy who said like the dolphins will naturally like swim up to pregnant women and like be their midwives. That yeah, kind of thing? yeah. Heard and he that. believed that dolphins and humans have this psychic connection, uh, and he believed that if you give birth in water and a dolphin helps you, that you're this is going to basically lead to like this new race of psychically gifted humans. And oh. Posadas said, oh, this guy is a Soviet scientist <laughs> who's uncovered this <laughs> unity because Posadas believed in this like really mystical unity uh, between humans and animals and aliens and the cosmos and objects and everything. He really believed in this Hegelian collapse of the subject and object in like a very literal way. So he thought that this was this advancement in, in Soviet science. And in reality, this this guy was not accepted at all by the Soviet state. In fact, I think he went to exile to do his experiments, uh, possibly because some children died in the oh. in the experiments with water birth. Um, but uh, Pasadas just thought it was a beautiful image, and he connected this also with a Soviet experiment of giving birth in space, which I haven't found any uh, you know research about. Um, I, I I think he might have been like reading some tabloids or something, uh, but he he just he was kind of sundowning at this point, uh, and so he connected these things, and he did write a few essays, mostly privately, that uh, incorporated this mystical image as the dolphin, as this symbol of unity between man and nature and the cosmos, uh, and interestingly, he was not uh, the only one to do this. John Lilly who was a scientist who was one of the uh, pioneers of the search for extraterrestrial life, SETI, uh, a, a field of, of science about trying to contact aliens, um, throughout the 60s became very obsessed with dolphins. He had done experiments with dolphins for decades, and uh, he had this kind of acid-induced psychedelic break where he saw dolphins as being this connection between the Earth and the cosmos. Um, that I don't really understand too much. I haven't read a lot of his work. Uh, but then you also see that in the movie Cocoon and in the video game Echo the Dolphin. Mm -hmm. So that trope was out there, and I don't think Posadas knew about that stuff. Uh, but it was just kind of this strange thing that comes up again and again. Yeah, I was going to bring up that we actually have a lot of, um, in broader culture, from basically like the the 50s or 60s on up, um, this generalized fixation that is just sort of lingering in the water of um, the West, including socialist states, where you have like investigations in, because that's when uh, the basically the modern field of animal behavioralism started to really get its feet, uh, get on its feet. And we had a lot of promising research into, say, like uh, the 
intelligent behaviors of various kinds of animals, uh, dolphins included, where that eventually spun into like the military partly funding that research, but only on the back of like, we're going to desperately try to make um, dolphins that can blow up submarines or dolphins that can bring like listening equipment and spy on people. Um, and as much as we sort of like, um, like chuckle at that, we still have the lay version of, um, our very poor lay understanding of like elephantine spirituality or gorilla spirituality where they, they mourn their dead and have um, burial rites and tool usage and things like that. And so the, the fixation on um, parallels of human and animal stuff, we, we see everything from like the major governments of the USSR and the US and, and Britain doing experiments and um, investigations to like popular fixation on them to like, Lisa Frank being born from basically the same cultural pool that Posadas was drawing on late in his life with, with the dolphin imagery. And so it gets presented as more jokey and inexplicable. But again, it's like we're constantly surrounded by it. How come when it's like, again, hate to be the Marxist Leninist conspiracy guy, but how come when it's a, a Trotskyite saying this stuff, suddenly <laughs> it's like unspeakably goofy and stupid, but like in every other context, it's like normal and fun. And like, we know how to take it as like, well, it's an image. You're not like Lisa Frank isn't saying literally you're going to turn into a psychedelic cool dolphin. It's more that these things can bring joy and inspiration. Hmm. Yeah, do you remember that film um, documentary uh, Blackfish that was on came out on Netflix oh, yeah. a few years ago? Yeah, the, the the talking the stuff it has about the way orcas process emotion, the way uh, being in um, SeaWorld basically drives them insane, and the only time they've ever killed anyone, even though they're called killer whales, is like when they're in captivity because they're just driven mad, and their emotion processing centers in their brain. Uh, many times bigger than uh, human ones so they they feel like every emotion it's like incredible levels we couldn't even imagine um yeah that's just like that's science that's just a person dissected a orca's brain and found that but when basada says it it's uh it's crazy it actually so, like yeah. i i see a good linkage between Posadas. i mean e even even personally keeping a distance from some of his ideas like i think some of the flippancy towards nuclear war is um highly troublesome to be to be mild about it yeah, um yeah. which i believe is a broadly agreed upon view um but uh that i at least i think there's something worthwhile there in comparison to like what mark fisher brings up in terms of capitalist realism of uh so the the short version of mark fisher's thought is that what we consider realism and unmarked realism is in reality within the West currently a capitalist realism because what we determine realistic versus fanciful is largely determined on modes of thought capitalism has baked into us. Like we see that even in like stories about disasters. Um, how come in the zombie apocalypse it's all um, paranoia and social dissolution and we see very few zombie tales about um, like uh, communes cropping up, even if they're troublesome, but you know, communes that that strive together um, and are broadly successful. And a lot of that is because we've been trained to view 
uh, man against man, you know, the, the inherent paranoia and scarcity of resource drives people to X, Y, Z. Um, and so Posadas representing sort of a counter to that ca capitalist realism of being more socialist realism of like, when imagining the world after revolution, what kinds of things are potential? What can we think of? And so even the things like using the dolphin symbol or the fixation on ufology, as some of the like scare quotes, goofier parts are built out of that socialist realism of like, let's assume, let's assume our thoughts about um, human psychology and the structure of society are real and achievable. Then what comes after that? What can potentially follow? You know, what broadcasting can we do in terms of, symbology or potentialities or you know futures and things like that hmm. yeah. well i guess i would i just disagree in the in the in the, in the sense that it, he's certainly not a, a realist in any regard um <laughs> like you know when you say socialist realism i think of like the, the the genre of painting that was pioneered in like the eastern Bloc, and what posadas conjures to mind is really more utopian really something more like Fourier or uh, uh, I don't know, like Ian Banks, even um, like these, uh, these utopian visions of the future that we can't even imagine right now. But what Posadas was makes Posadas somewhat unique in that regard is that the imagery of nuclear catastrophe or of, you know, alien contacts or invasion adds this kind of transition to it where we, there needs to be this kind of, uh, you know, sudden destruction in order for us to get to uh, something better, to have the potential of doing something better. And there um, he doesn't even necessarily disagree with, with like with Lenin all that much, who also saw that like it isn't going to be a peaceful transition. There will be a violent component to any real revolution. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's baked into the Marxist tradition. Like Marx had yeah. his moments of thinking maybe we can do this peacefully. But uh, I think really d deep down, Marx understood that the, the class contradiction had to resolve itself very violently. And as the ca capability of violence cut greater with each year with World War I and World War II, um, you know, it, that became so immense that I think in the 60s, people began to understand nuclear winter meant uh, that just everybody would die. And so that kind of changed things. But Passas was perhaps the last thinker who basically believed nuclear winter to be a, you know, a CIA psyop or something like that and said, like, let's just go for it. Let's let's have the nukes. Let's have the alien invasion, uh, because he, he understood that things needed that, you know, he he never believed that we could have communism just by developing the worker states by having these workers revolutions he supported those things but he considered that partial uh he, he considered the socialism of the ussr and the worker states to be partial and he thought that there needed to be nuclear war for there to be a complete or full communism and i think in a in a way every revolutionary believes something like that that there needs to be a catastrophe or something very unexpected needs to happen like a mass awakening uh, you know, like a, the, the emergence of a messianic charismatic figure, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so although Posadas expressed it in a very strange way that's hard to agree with, 
um, everyone agrees with something like that. And so that's why he's such a good cartoon character representation of revolutionary utopian fantasies. So okay. that's that's where I think my like a slight clarification on my usage of socialist realism. Obviously, that's a real term that's used to define more like even in the American tradition, I'd be more like Steinbeck than anything else. So it's like uh -huh. it's about portraying the material suffering. I was um, at least intending to use it in, in juxtaposition to Mark Fisher's usage of the term capitalist realism of more what we've been conditioned to believe is realistic. And so sometimes working our way out of that, something can appear utopian because our frame of what is considered realistic or plausible is conditioned by, by notions of capitalism that constrict the imaginative faculty and the ability to project. Now, obviously, there are still elements of Posadas that, that fall outside of what I would call a pure socialist realism in that sense, but at least as a way to model it of like, we don't, we don't only have to think in terms of the blunt, um, the blunt constraint of potentiality that capitalism gives us. So it would be just, lit if we had psychic dolphins. Oh yeah, I mean, goes without saying. But um, to bring it back to the the current moment, like all this shit going on around us has more than anything in our lifetimes, or possibly anyone's lifetime, uh, shown that capitalism doesn't work under certain conditions. You can't have a capitalist society when most people are going to be in quarantine and can't work or consume. And kind of the only sort of society that could get through this would be, uh, that could get through this in like a really good way would be a communist society. So is there a, like a Posadist reading of coronavirus? Could we make a, a Posadist argument that this could be the big moment of rupture, just like a nuclear war, and that... Um, maybe this is what's going to lead us to the, the grand communist promised land. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, like I said, Posadas was this great thinker of catastrophism, which was the idea that catastrophe is not only necessary to change things for the better, but desirable. Uh, so although I haven't seen much of that kind of writing, because uh, most people understand this is going to be, you know, a lot of people are going to die. Um, there is some optimism that this is like a wake-up call for humanity as a whole, that things, we can't just keep continuing to live our lives the way we've been living them. We need to reassess our relationship with each other and with the earth. Um, there's a revelation of the, uh, the conflict between our lives and the economy for the first time, where suddenly people, you know, they don't have work, but for some reason, they're still being asked to pay rents. This mm. in the United States, you still have to, you still have to go into major medical debt for Ooh, yeah, trying to thirty-five thousand uh, dollars for a lady yeah. who is um, uninsured. And even the government is trying to figure out, well, how much do we bail out the economy, and how much do we bail out the people? Mm. Um, Here it is, so... Sarah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think um, I was, we were talking I was saying... about this before the show. Yeah, so... So, um, one, um, I think there was a bit of recently been a, an idea that, uh, they would bail it out to the tune of a trillion dollars a day for the duration of the crisis. So like that trillion dollar bailout we had the other day, they just keep doing that every single day. 
And um, Rashida Tlaib has come up with a, a very clever idea where she's just going to mint two $2 trillion coins. And uh, because we will have those $2 trillion coins, we can just give that money to people, which sounds absurd until you realize all money is fake. And you can just like write a billion trillion dollars on a post-it note. And that is as valid as any other money in the world, if people believe it to be so. Well, certainly the dollar is a lot more real than other forms of currency. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. You couldn't couldn't do that with like the (laughs) Colombian peso, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, money is very silly. Um, I do encourage people to listen to the Antifada's um, hashtag line goes down thing, because that's opened my eyes to just how silly money is. It's a very crazy concept. Yeah, the whole, um, I got into looking at numismatics, which is the fancy word for the study of the value of money, not like the study of resources, but specifically of of money and money markets through Neil Stevenson, a guy who I'm not sure is a good author, <laughs> but I fucking love. Um, mm. But yeah, it's this like dumb, crazy rabbit hole where like every other article or like academic paper I read, I go, wait, now all of it makes sense. And then I read another and be like, no, it's gone again. Nope. Nope. There it went like back and forth. I I never know uh, in my brain how to feel about, (laughs) about it. uh, Aside from it's insane. Like. Hmm. Yeah. Probably crazier than uh, UFOs might have good social orders that we may want to (laughs) think about. Well, probably more insane than dolphins are quite sentient, and we could probably communicate with them on some level. There's a there's a a, a notion from a Hofstadter, who the guy who wrote like Gerdelescherbach and a couple other things that he refers to as a strange mm-hmm. loop, um, of like strange recursive bits of logic that seem also like you can't boil them down or extract them, like the thought like something breaks if you remove it, but it's definitely self-referential. And uh, numismatics is built out of like a thousand of those linked together, like chain mail. <laughs> like there's a lot of like self-reifying or self-justifying logic that if you remove it, nothing works. Um, but like we, we have money and it, it works with a lot of asterisks at the, like a lot. Like a lot of asterisks, but and it's probably broken forever now. Hmm. But <laughs> yeah, we just can't do a society anymore where people go to work and then come home and spend <laughs> money um, because we're just going to be all at home all the time. Um, I wonder if that will lead to an increase in UFO abductions. Yeah, you know, people's brains are like are very bored. They're looking for stimulation. Their brains will generate novelty. For, for themselves, and that could lead to the increase in UFOs, in weird religion. Like, if, if we are, are, like, at home, are just in our houses for the next year, which is a possibility, like, it takes 14 months to develop a vaccine, and we can't come out before the vaccine's done, like, shit's going to get weird. And people are going to get... Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I have noticed there's a a kind of a meme going around that in April aliens really? are going to come. I've seen that meme. And, and my my interpretation of that is uh, there's always been this kind of connection with like apocal 
catastrophe or apocal change with alien uh, invasion yeah. or abduction. Like when 9-11 happened, people were like, wow, that's just like mm. Independence Day because their their memory of uh, uh, buildings getting destroyed was from Independence Day. So um, I think like aliens kind of often serve as this pressure valve uh, to kind of help people make sense of a situation that makes mm. no sense. Uh, and it's certainly one of the interpretations of the abduction uh, phenomena of like people report abductions is that they're um, using it to explain other kinds of trauma mm, in their yeah. life. Uh, so you you might be totally onto something there. I hope so. I, ho I well, I know shit's going to get weird unless unless we've been completely misled about the extent and of this whole corona thing. Then things are going to get very strange, very strange and horny, strange and horny. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, we're we're all anticipating the horny apocalypse where we all uh, get like locked in uh, air pressurized uh, bathrooms and then uh, drown in a wave of unceasing yeah, cum. It could happen. It's oh, going to be terrible. Yeah, I mean, people are just. We're going to be like encased in cum amber. <laughs> They're going to find us millions of years from now. They'll be like, "What kind of pale white goo suffocated this poor man?" Yeah, we're all going to be that uh, guy from. Um... Oh, what's called? Place, place in Italy had a volcano. Uh, Pompeii. Yeah, that, Pompeii. that jacking off guy from Pompeii. <laughs> that guy's my fucking hero. Especially because, like, apparently the volcano had been exploding for, like, several hours. So he, he definitely knew what okay, was happening. I've got to... That was not like you're looking out the window and being like, oh, shit. Like... I've, got to, uh, I've got to defend the honor of the jacking off Pompeii guy here. Because there's a... A theory that Pompeii was a very, very sexual society because there's like murals in like people's family homes of like goats fucking dudes and like weird shit going on. They would just like be above your table while you're eating with your family. And that's maybe like jacking off while you're dying was like their way of like transcending. They, they were like, uh, he was trying to like time his is nuts with the pyroclastic flow hitting him and in order to transcend to the the next mother level of a uh, Pompeii sexy religion. So it, it, it's not just a guy jacking off. It can, it can mean more than that. And that's, that's the thought I'd like to leave everyone with here. Um, even all the Posada <laughs> stuff, it's just jacking off is, is good for you. Uh, it's good for the prostate. Um, good for the wrist. Motions. Casadas uh... would argue it's not good for you. You should not do it. You should use that that tension for uh, the struggle against class Don't society. Listen to it, and that's the one and only place where Posadas was yeah. wrong. <laughs> Just massively wrong. Uh, Counter revolutionary in every single way. You're gonna, there. you're gonna tell contemporary communists that we can't yeah. crank it. Oh, you're in What's for that? a treat, we buddy. Can't eat ass? Well, I encourage you. Uh, <laughs> I encourage you both to read. I want to believe. Um, it comes out April twentieth from Pluto Books. You can order it at plutobooks.com. Use code Posadas twenty for a twenty percent discount, and you will find many other places where Posadas was wrong. But also, you <laughs> might find some other weird ideas of his that you Good. agree with. Well, I'm glad. So yeah, we're gonna finish off the episode by playing uh probably one of my favorite albums of the year so far um 
and by one of my favorite people too. So Feminazgul came out in 2018. Um, the main person, uh, Margaret Kiljoy, came on the show because she, she's also, in addition to being an amazing musician, she's also a brilliant writer and podcaster, just absolute renaissance person. Um, so the album The Age of Men is Over came out in 2018. It was kind of a meme because it was like, what if there was um, a misandrist black metal? That's crazy. And it was a meme. But uh, the new album has come out, No Dawn for Men. Uh, it's a lot longer. It's incredible. It sounds so good. Uh, she's added some extra people to the uh, the lineup. Uh, Laura Beach is now vocalist, really insanely good vocalist. Uh, if you ever heard, um, it's kind of an obscure doom metal act called Celestial with two eyes. I've, I'm like weirdly into them. They're they're oh, extremely good. Uh, I think he is. Ex it's just one one guy. I think it is. He was also in a bunch of other bands um, and. Just, in and around uh, Agalok. But um, yeah, it kind of has that like really breathy, like a, like a mountain talking to you kind of, um, kind of vibe to it. And the music has a lot of classical elements, um, really beautifully done. They're not like corny kind of symphonic metal stuff. It's, it's really well integrated. It's all working together. It's yeah. There's synthesizers, accordions as, an instrument called a Dane axe. I don't even know what that is. Um, but yeah, it's absolutely really incredible album. Um, so I'm going to play the third track of it called the rot in the field is holy. Um, yeah, just check this one out. It's, it's all on Bandcamp. She's put it up there for pay as you pay what you want. Cause a lot of musicians right now are doing, are doing really good things. We can't, couldn't possibly list them all here. Um, Oh, we should give a shout out to uh, Lingua Ignata for doing a noise, harsh noise remix of the celebrities doing the um, Imagine. That was uh, that needed to happen. Yeah, <laughs> we need to hear some harsh noise over that. God, I, I fucking hate. I, 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 this is a complete uncontroversial opinion that everyone shares, but I fucking hated that celebrities doing Imagine. It's like, ugh. And then they're not even celebrities. No one goes to see films anymore. A, a celebrity is like some guy on YouTube who eats old army rations for like 10 million viewers per episode and is making millions of dollars. Ugh, I hate celebrities. Um, so yeah, check out Feminazgol. Uh, also got another episode out this week uh, with Dan Franklin about his book Heavy. An ex uh, philosophical exploration of the heavy metal thing. Uh, we're going to be talking to a, a mutual friend, um, Heather Fortune. Uh, she's she was on the Antifada a few weeks ago, um, and we're going to be talking to her about what's happening to the music industry right now, and well, not the industry, like the actual musicians, the touring bands. Uh, next week, we're talking to uh, Wendy Liu about uh, abolishing Silicon Valley. We've got uh, Shannon Strucci, who has been on my show guest bucket list for many a years. We're talking about web comics with her. Um, I've been stupid productive and just been booking shows left and right. I'm going to be on a bunch of different shows, just him as a guest on shit. Um, yeah, it's, you know, stuff outside. 
not very good right now. Stuff inside might not, might not be very good if you have if you have the Rona. But you know, just keep listening. There will be we will provide you good stuff. Um, we've got a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Deaf Sentence. Uh, we do more episodes on that. Um, we've been reading a lot of comics lately. We've been talking about some weird fucking comics. We've been talking about we go way oh, weirder yeah. into UFOs than Posadis has ever done. Um, it helps that we've both gotten crazy fucking high. Oh before. yeah, yeah. If you've so. if you've ever been like <laughs> massively stoned, then yeah. Um, you go to the mothership. Yeah. Oh, I was high the other day. I came up with the most brilliant short story I've ever written in like years. It's so good. I'm like, I'm I'm back into writing Excellent. now. Um, I uh, I wasn't high when I came up with the notion that elves have cloacas but still produce milk, but it's crop milk. I was sober. Actually, my partner realized the crop milk thing. I say realized because it was an epiphany. Okay. Uh, do you want me to cut that? Because that could be like used against you to like have you committed. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, here's Feminazgal. Go buy um, uh, I Want to Believe from Pluto Books. Uh, stay healthy. Here's Feminazgal. <laughs>